Welcome to Restart Radio, a very different show about gadgets on Resonance 104.4 FM. This is a different show because unlike most, we don't focus on all those new shiny, shiny things to buy. Instead, we focus on the value and the stuff we already have. The Restart Project aims for a shift of behavior towards a more sustainable and a happier relationship with electronics. And the monthly community electronics repair events that we used to host in London are just the beginning. My name is Janet Gunter from the Restart Project, and I'm joined by my partner in crime, Ugo Valauri. Hello. And today uh, we're starting a month of shows about light. We've had a really rough year this year, and we thought it was good to focus on light. So today we'll be talking about lamps and remaking lamps. We're joined by Jonathan Samuels, who also goes by Sam, who's here to tell us about how this year has impacted his work in live events and theater and how he was able to change everything and start a new business venture in repurposing and refurbishing old objects into lamps. Welcome to the show, Sam. Hello there. We're glad to have you. We spotted you. Um, I believe we spotted you on Etsy. I was, I, I'm one of those people that I kind of have a love-hate relationship with Etsy. And I was going through Etsy, you know, looking at various products, and I stumbled across your shop. And I just thought your story was really compelling. And I also, of course, loved the objects that I was seeing in front of me. So Sam, tell us about your background and how you got into lighting design, maybe to start. So yes, I'm a traditionally, I work in theatre and live event, as you said. So I started out in the early 90s. Uh, First of all, I trained as a lighting designer, so lighting stages uh, for theatre events, and I moved into dance. And in recent years, I've also twinned that with production management. So for the last 25 years or so, I've been working full time in live event, theatre, site specific, things like that, things that people come and see. And obviously, that's had a bit of a change this year. Yeah. What did you have planned, let's say, in April? Like, what was the first thing that actually got cancelled for you? Oh, the first thing. So I lost uh, an exhibition first, and then I lost two festivals. So that was my, my that was pretty much my entire calendar of, of events taking me up until September. In the events, you tend to be about three months ahead. So that was the first three months gone. And then obviously the next three months didn't happen. And then the three months after that didn't happen either. And that's where we are today. So at what point did you kind of think, you know, OMG, I need to do something different this with my year this year? Probably while I was using my allocation of meeting one friend for a dog walk, I found myself quite often talking about, well, there's obviously no shows coming up. You know, this was in April and May when we weren't really sure. We thought maybe we'd be able to come back in September, maybe November at the latest. It was all very optimistic. And I realised I kept having the same conversation with people, that I was interested in maybe using some of the skills I picked up in theatre, my passion for light, because that hasn't gone away, um, and, and seeing a lot of people buying new things when that wasn't necessarily necessary um, and trying to think, well, why don't I stop talking about it and try it? So I popped to my local uh, vintage shop. It's a sort of house reclamation shop, halfway junk shop, halfway vintage. And I bought three things. I spent £100 and I made a loss. (laughs) But you know what? That's what got me started. And once I realised that this was something I could stop talking about and actually start doing, that's how things have really moved forwards. 
That's brilliant. And but with those lamps that you made a loss on, I mean, it must have been a different experience for you, though, because you're just sat almost as a kind of halfway between a hobbyist and someone searching for something, not at all like your previous work in lighting. How did it feel to kind of start with those three lamps? <laughs> well, you know what? It's it, I love a learning curve, I have to say. And I really enjoyed that. I didn't mind making the mistakes. I didn't mind getting it wrong about pricing things on eBay and Etsy and and what postage really costs and all those things, because it's all learning. I mean, I say I made a loss. I, I probably gained a huge amount of experience. And if you'd ask someone to train you to do that, well, that would probably have cost a fortune. So I made a loss in financial terms, but I made a huge gain in what I learned. And those three lights really then led me on to being able to get three more and 10 more. And that puts me where I am today, which is still learning, really very much learning what I'm doing, but I'm making fewer mistakes and I'm having more successes. And when you say learning, is it on the business side or are you are you actually learning a lot about, let's say, older, older lamps and every, all the, the trials and tribulations of refurbishing older lamps? On every single level. I mean, <laughs> I now know more about Herbert Terry's angle poises than I ever thought I'd know. I can spot an Apex 90 from a standard 90 from across a room. And I've learned how what's what's junk, what's salvageable and actually what's just needs some love. And and it it it's it can be anything, you know. The most ropey lamp can be turned into something great again, which it which it was again, or it can be turned into something completely new, and actually something that looks quite salvageable might might not be. I'm learning about the business side of it hugely. I now understand how Etsy works. I'd always purchased on eBay, but I'd never been a seller. I now understand how that works, and I'm slowly learning. And probably my least successful area is how to do online marketing. Well, it's interesting you raised angle poise because, you know, one of the things that uh, it struck me in looking at some of your creations and, and then just even thinking about theater and film and is that actually Britain does seem to have quite a heritage in, you know, in excellent and innovative lighting and lamps. Um, and, and actually, from our perspective, some of those brands um, are some of the most durable and lasting that we think that we can think of like Mathmos and um, Anglepoise both you know are known for supporting their lamps and as you said any lamp can be fixed it's a question of how easy it is or how economic exposed it is tell us a little bit more about like do you, do you think that there is you know there is kind of a special British heritage in lighting yeah that's a really good point um what I'm learning is they're really well built and that's why you can repair them I mean it makes a huge difference as you start to move through the ages, as soon as you get products which are older than, say, 1975, you start to find bits which are not repairable. They may be welded, they may be riveted rather than screwed, nuts and bolts. But the good old Anglepoise still uses nuts and bolts, screws. It's all replaceable. It's all repairable. They're all durable and and findable products now. I've just yesterday restored a, an Anglepoise and two of the nuts needed needed replacing and and they're things that I have in in the in the drawer now because they're they're still things that are made i th I don't know if it's a, a truly british thing it it may be um to do with an era thing, but certainly it's worth saying that yes, the Anglepoise company absolutely made things to last, and the other company that you might have seen around on Etsy and things like that is the strand company that made for theater back in the 19, late 50s and early 60s and throughout the 70s and 80s. And their equipment is absolute. You can strip it down to the very smallest part and you can rebuild the whole thing and you can always find a replacement for it. And that really makes a difference when you come to repair things. 
Yeah, I mean, some of your the creations that I enjoy of yours the most, they have some kind of um, definitely earlier like um, career, shall we say, <laughs> and they then they become they become household lamps. But why don't you tell us about some of your favorites that you've taken from kind of industrial or other other areas and turned into home lamps? Oh, it's so hard to have a favorite, but I think <laughs> if I think about the memorable ones, I mean, it's when I look at something in a in a shop whether it's an antique shop or a junk shop if it's not a lamp so if I'm not repairing a lamp what I'm doing is repurposing something else to become a lamp and that would be because it no longer really has a viable life uh so for instance I have behind me a lovely paraffin gas burner uh, paraffin gas um now that would have cooked someone's lunch but in this day and age that's no longer practical and I don't think it's appropriate that we're burning that kind of fuel and that kind of thing but that would now either be an ornament to be looked at in its own right, but it doesn't have a lot of mileage in that. So why not turn it into a lamp, give it a whole new life, let people, you know, take away that darkness of these long winter evenings and have something beautiful and historical to look at and think about all those things in the past, that great engineering and the people that might have used it. So when I'm seeing those products in, in, in those shops, I'm looking for what, what am I saving from otherwise becoming maybe recycling or worse junk? Um, what I wouldn't want to do is sort of take something that could still be viable today, just needs repairing and turn that into a lamp. That would feel wrong to me. I think it's got to have, it's got to be projecting its future, not just changing its future. I think that's really important. So as I look over the things I have, yeah, I think one of the things I'm really enjoying at the moment are soda siphons. Um, there's some lovely beautiful shapes and amazing colours um, and I'm developing ways of turning them into desk lamps and spot lamps not just putting a light bulb on the top but actually making it something that someone would really properly use and we're all working from home a lot more or lots of people are working from home so desk lamps are, are really big people want those maybe most of the year they've managed with that something that's held together with sellotape and now they realize that they're going to be in this for the long haul so why not make their work from home space something nice um, and that's where i think either repairing or repurposing really comes into its own because these are things that people have a need for they're not just desirable they actually genuinely have a need for and i think when you've so if you take a product or an item which otherwise is obsolete you then give it new life and you find someone who really needs that thing that's the perfect kind of recycling and repurposing for me that that's what makes me happy i feel like you are reading into our mind because i've been feeling this last few weeks by the time it's 3:45 or so I, i i'm desperate and you know i'm not necessarily happy with the kind of lighting arrangement and this is the big difference with the first lockdown when you know every day you were seeing days last longer and some hope in finishing work and running out and enjoying sunset no now you can only enjoy a nice lamp actually <laughs> so i wonder how are people uh, reacting what what kind of feedback you get from people what are they most interested in It's across the board, actually, and that's one of the reasons why my shop doesn't really just focus on one thing. There is a huge attraction. As soon as an angle poise, a proper angle poise goes up, people are definitely putting that in a basket. They're favoriting it. They're looking at it. But, you know, there's everybody likes something quirky, and I think what I'm trying not to do is just feed into a particular market. What I want to do are make things that interest me, that I think have value, and then see who else has that 
interest as well. And I think particularly with things like Etsy, people don't want mass produced. They don't want the same as their neighbour. And they are looking for something quite unique. Um, I've got a science range, which is a which is a slight departure, which is me taking salvaged science equipment and turning those into lights. Um, that really excites me. And I'm people a fan seem, of those. You like those. <laughs> Everyone's a fan of those. They're, that's favorited by more people than any other product. But I think that's the important thing is that everyone's different. And I think the thing to do is to find good and useful things, honourable upcycles and, and repurposes, and let the customer decide which ones they want. I mean, sometimes I'm quite sad when they get sold because I can't have them in my house anymore and I can't see them online. And I'm a bit sad, oh, no, I've sold that one. I have to get rid of it. it it's not, no one can see it anymore. And I do limit the number of items that I'm going to make in any one area. I think it's important to make people feel like they bought something special, that they're quite unique. It may not be a one-off, but but it will be a limited run. There won't be hundreds of these things. Even if it was popular, I'd avoid doing that. Well, we're going to uh, let you tell everyone how to find you. And, and and definitely, if people are interested before Christmas, and if there's still time to get a special lamp from you, let us know. So yes, you can find me on Etsy. All you need to do is search Sam Lights. That's the name Sam and the word lights. Uh, I'm also available on eBay under the same heading. Yeah. And on Instagram, I'm at Sam Lights Online. And it would be lovely if people could pop by, have a look at the things I've got and make some comments. It would be really good to know what people think of it because it puts me in the right direction for knowing what, what people out there are really looking for. Brilliant. Well, thanks for joining us. And I um, really wish you best of success and, and the, during these dark months, especially, and um, into the new year of building your business. That's brilliant. Listen, it's been really great to talk to you guys. Um, thanks for what you do as well. It's really important that you keep up what you're doing. We need to start saving things and throwing less things away. Absolutely. Thank you. You're listening to Restart Radio on Resonance 104.4 FM. It's been a difficult year for repairing together in person, but there is still work that needs to be done in coming months to make repair more accessible in the future. Much of this work requires funding, including for campaigning, creating educational resources, creating safe volunteer opportunities, even producing these very radio shows. If you're able to donate to help fund our work, please go to therestartproject.org slash give and learn more. discuss some of the uh, some of the month's news from our perspective. Um, we're going to start with a really a big piece of good news from our perspective. A report that a UK parliamentary committee called the Environmental Audit Committee released um, just on the eve of Black Friday, which was uh, brilliant timing. And um, the report had been basically, on, it's, it's on electronic waste. And the inquiry had started uh, last year already, but the committee showed a real commitment to this, um, to this topic. And we were involved in some of the um, oral submissions of evidence that happened in the summertime. Well, what's your take on the report, Ugo, the top line? The top line is that it's exciting that most of the key points about the need for right to repair and the current barriers that we experience have been taken on board by the um, Environmental Audit Committee and 
their call for regulation and legislation at UK level for right to repair is loud and clear. In fact, they endorsed most of our key demands of right to repair campaigners, and we didn't expect them to go that far. So, well, and yeah, they also called for the right to repair to be enshrined in law, specifically in UK law. And they, you know, in a couple of areas, we feel like they went a little bit further than some of the proposals in Europe, or at least they were more clear than some of the proposals in Europe. Do you want to share what those are, Ugo? Yes. Uh, for instance, they talk about the need to have labeling that shows both a product durability and the software durability of the software support and uh, uh, the repairability rating. So they actually spell out the importance of for consumers to see all of these aspects of a product expected lifetime uh, at the time when they're making a purchase. And, and oh, another another one that's really important, and it, it's basically related to a show we did with um, a highly talented repair tech a couple of weeks back on serialization, on this very clever pairing of spare parts and devices that manufacturers are starting to really to really do um, across the board. And this uh, report calls for independent repair professionals to have access to the same software tools that manufacturers use. And we hope that that would prevent um, this kind of use of serialization to lock out independent third-party repairers. Um, but more generally, I feel like the report is important because it really pushes the emphasis up the waste hierarchy. And you know, it's a report about waste ostensibly but it, it does not focus on recycling as the only solution or as the first solution. It looks at reuse, the role that reuse can play. Um, so totally relevant to our conversation about lamps and reusing old lamps, but it's, it's important that UK Parliament comes out so clearly with this, um, this message that it's not just recycling that's gonna solve the problem. Yeah, and the need for metrics that can help uh, track what's actually happening because yeah as Belgium and uh, Catalonia uh, have come up with uh, targets for reuse I mean why can't the UK have them in a clear way another issue that's we've seen some um, suggestions in other EU countries on VAT reduced VATs for certain kinds of repairs correct me if I'm wrong but we haven't seen a proposal for reduced VATs on electronics repairs um, so and, and that's that's pretty groundbreaking and pretty good and from our perspective we'd love to see it as a zero VAT because as we like to say if you can get your luxury yacht repaired with a zero VAT, why can't you get your mobile repaired with a zero VAT as well? Are there any other things that we would push them on potentially a little bit further, Ugo? I quite liked how they look at the logistics of large online retailers, and they make specific examples of Amazon, and how they should be used as reverse logistics uh, to deal with uh, collection of waste or potentially for repair and reuse, why not? And and they seem to require urgency. Uh, they give the government one year to act on this. I mean, of course, we don't know whether this report will actually trigger the, the amount of action that we'd love to see, but it, it's something. Okay. Technically, the government has two months to respond, and some of the issues addressed 
kind of need to be addressed by revisions and policies that are ongoing that have slightly been delayed by Brexit and other things. But yeah, we'll hope we'll hope we'll see some action by government. But actually, you know, we don't have too many reasons to be that hopeful that this is all going to be translated into policy or law. Um, but one thing that I did find encouraging is that this is a very much a cross-party kind of um, effort. And we found that, you know, the chair is, uh, is a conservative. He, he was very outspoken, um, especially on the need for right to repair. And many other Tory backbenchers who were on who were on the committee were also super supportive. Of course, we have the Carolyn Lucas of the Greens was there um, and some, you know, some Labour MPs who we would expect would be supportive. But uh, it was really encouraging to see that. And and as well as an SNP member who was who was outspoken in your um, in your session. So there is uh, there is definitely um, cross party support for these measures. The question is whether government is going to act on it with the you know, due urgency. Um, shall we talk about another piece of good news that happened uh, at a European level? It's it's actually really refreshing to be able to talk about positive pieces of news, both from Whitehall in London and from Brussels at the same time. So tell us what happened, Hugo. Was yes. it in Brussels or was it in Strasbourg? I believe it was in Brussels. Uh, uh, but in any case, wherever they were, or whether they were connecting through the internet, <laughs> um, we had been following this report from the Internal uh, Market Committee of the European Parliament for quite some time uh, by uh, French MEP Command, uh, who's tried to push for more clarity and ambition in terms of future right to repair regulation um, at European level. But as we learned, the European Parliament is not as good and um, aligned on this Green New Deal policies as we'd like to see. And during the negotiations after this first draft of his report, some of the political parties tried to dilute the report significantly and, for example, push for voluntary labelling of products as opposed to mandatory labelling. And to ask the European Commission to only focus on planned obsolescence cases. So let's say if a manufacturer chose a bad component on purpose so that your product would be throw away in a couple of years. So you would you would need like the smoking gun, as it yes. were. Rather than focusing on the much broader and for us much more worrying practice of premature obsolescence. So deliberate choices that alter the optimal lifetime of a product and shorten it significantly by, say, making a spare part hugely expensive or stopping to support uh, with software a product, which is a deliberate choice. But anyway, the good news is that thanks also in part to our own European right to repair campaigns, pressure on particularly liberal MEPs from the Renew group, which includes the French Macronian ones, uh, among others, we were able to turn this vote around and by two votes on uh, uh, the premature obsolescence um, article, which was way too close, but we did it. And um, that means that now the European Commission has a very clear mandate that uh, should... Uh, 
push for more ambition legislation from 2021. But of course, it's just one of many steps into this. So it was exciting to see the press really uh, welcome this vote. And But yeah, when will we actually have these regulations? We'll have to campaign for quite a bit longer. Well, I think it, I always I, I always slightly chuckle at these moments when um, when the European Parliament does something interesting or something really exciting happens there, and we realize actually how limited their power is and how um, how Europe works is you know is still a mystery to many people. So ultimately, it's the Commission that's, that's going to that's going to draft all of these regulations. That's going to make all of these decisions. Um, but it's but it is important that the elected body um, that we elected like takes the right takes you know takes the side of the people in this one because you know their own polling showed such overwhelming support for these measures. Um, but it was it was kind of a moment of truth, wasn't it? And we saw where people's allegiances really lied, and and we also see that the conservatives are hell bent against this stuff. So we know. That the you know the conservative bloc in the European Parliament is very much against it, and you know very much anti any form of kind of regulation on this. So it's important to know where all the different where all the political allegiances are. But I I also think it's really encouraging that uh, we had a great response from uh, people who follow the European Right to Repair campaign, and a lot of interest in actually taking an action of writing to your MEP or tweeting and making some noise. And I think politicians need to be reminded that we're there, we're watching, and we're not going to let go if someone says, oh, well, let's make that voluntary. No, we want regulations. We know that the stuff isn't going to be sold by any company doing a voluntary agreement. Yeah, no, and, and that was... You know, we were also able to get that message out to the media, as you said, who were quite interested. So that was that was positive. Um, should we talk about one last, slightly more mundane story that may have affected some people who listen to this podcast? So if you have an older MacBook Pro, um, and by older, well, we actually consider it fairly young, but maybe... Yeah, it would already be considered vintage by maybe some Apple stores. <laughs> yes, well, of course, Apple... Yeah, Apple calls it vintage. But if you had a machine that's, I believe, uh, yeah, in that range of like um, upwards of five to seven years old, I don't know the exact model numbers. If you updated to the new Big Sur Mac OS, you, you were potentially in for a very nasty surprise. Um, I believe some people were basically get bricking their machines by, um, by installing these... Um, Updates. Oh, yeah. So it's on the late 2013 and mid 2014 models. And I mean, this is basically everybody's worst nightmare, right? Yeah, this is your this is you know, and, and please tell me that the people who were doing this had a backup of their data <laughs> because, you know, it is a nightmare. So in that situation, um, it's a good reminder to us that if you have older hardware, don't be the first to upgrade. Don't resist every upgrade and every software update, but it's usually best to let some other people <laughs> go in there first and see what happens. 
Yeah, evidently enough people actually <laughs> didn't resist the urge to, to, to go and see how amazing this new version will be. I mean, because I guess there's plenty of changes to the way it looks. And uh, fair enough, people like to, to see a whole new desktop experience. But yeah, wait a bit longer and let someone else <laughs> deal with those bugs. I'm sure they'll fix it, but it might be very stressful. Yeah. And ultimately, the other thing about those machines is that they are, you know, they're upgrade. They're actually the upgradable ones. They're the repairable ones. Those are the machines we want to be hanging on to. So take good care of them. Also, the software. Yes. Well, um, we're going to have to wrap up. But um, bringing things back to our earlier interview with Sam, just a reminder that lamps are the most repairable electrical products that we see at our events. We fix about two thirds of them on the spot at our restart parties, our community repair events. And they're the fourth most popular item to bring to our events behind laptops, mobiles, and small kitchen items. Uh, sadly, due to the pandemic, we're not currently running our restart parties to help with broken lamps, but don't give up on your very well-loved lamp. Save it for repair next year. You can sign up for updates about when we're going to relaunch events on the website at therestartproject.org or find us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Thanks to OptoNoise and Cassini Sound for the music, which was made with lasers, plastic spinning discs, and discard electronics. And we're here every second Tuesday of the month at 5 p.m. Until next time.